0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the one, the only Nick's Nonfiction. You are here with your host Nick Munez. Today on the show, we got a special one—the May themed edition, Dealer's Choice. I have got for you the Socrates Express by Eric Viner. This—we got a German teacher in the comments. Did I say that right? Socrates said, "To do is to be." Plato said, "To be is to do." Sinatra said. Doobie, dooby doo. <laughs> Ever heard the powerful, final moving words of Socrates? I drank. What? Poisoned himself with hemlock. You're thinking, how could philosophy help me in my 2020 modern life? This author starts by calling out all the iPhone addicts, all of the overeaters. Quote, we do not want what we think we want. We think we want information and comfort. We do not. We want wisdom. There's a difference. Information is a jumble of facts. Knowledge, a more organized jumble. Wisdom untangles the facts, makes sense of them, and crucially suggests how best to use them. This is what I'm always getting at on the show. Of course, we have facts and knowledge. We always touch on some wisdom, especially those who stick around to the end know that. And the underlying human condition is what Eric is going to put us in the face of today. With 10 of the best philosophers Jean-Jacques Rousseau to Nietzsche we're going in the woods with Thoreau extracting all of the wisdom and here's a literary one-liner this one might get a laugh in the teacher's lounge wisdom does for young people what spirituality does for old people old people have heard all of the soothsayers the Tony Robbins they want some spirituality out here us young people, we need some wisdom. What is the next life hack that I could apply to my day-to-day? This guy's out here collecting all the information. And this is coming from the book guy. It's pretty petty to waste your time on earth collecting knowledge. <laughs> this is the point of the show. I'm distilling books down to one hour a week into wisdom. Some people are looking for wisdom in packages of peanut butter M&Ms. I'm not sure who wrote this. Yuck them up. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. (laughs) It's a proper sitcom laugh on that one. Socrates used to say, let thy food be thy medicine and thy medicine be... Okay, boomer, we have (laughs) STEM technology. We all stumble through life like hoping that we're going to pick up wisdom here and there. It's in books, people. You have to, like, all of these guys summarize their entire lives into this. And Eric is doing a double summarization. I am distilling that again at the Niche Distillery. (laughs) These people are fucking wizards. Philosophy means lover of wisdom. They, like, spent their whole life. We might get spiritual, pulling things out of the astral dimension. People don't have ideas. Ideas have people. And why do people read this crap? Let me give you one more quote life is not a problem for me not yet this is from the author but i feel the hot breath of time on my neck and a little stronger every day i want to know, need to know what matters and what doesn't before it's too late stoics unite what did socrates dentist study philosophy <laughs> what gym did socrates go to the why We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Welcome back. Make sure you are checking out patreon.com slash the niche high altitude hikes. We're hitting scary summits this summer. And uh, pay uh, Instagram, Harry Schwant. We're closing in on 20,000 followers over there. Eric Viner, he's a popular speaker and author, New York Times bestseller. He wrote The Geography of Bliss man seeks god the geography of genius and today the socrates express this book is from 2020 pretty new publisher weekly says makes a convincing and winningly presented case for a practical application of philosophy to everyday existence in the 21st century he has uh did some time at npr Hmm. he spent a decade with them they sent him all over the world so he did pieces with uh, New Delhi. He went to Jerusalem, Tokyo. If there's a New Delhi, it's got to be an old Delhi. Am I right? Is it some crusty old Subway, an Indian guy? What are you doing? Take off your shoes. Excuse me, sir. You cannot park your magic carpet there. <laughs> About the author Eric Weiner. He wrote a few books. Wrote for uh, New York Times. And if you listen to this show... You know, I've tried on all of the personalities. We're two years into adapting every book. You ever see that meme about middle schoolers when they leave a movie theater? You adapt to the personality of Batman or whatever it is. Every time I read a philosopher, those thoughts haunt me until I can cleanse my palate with a new book. And nihilism, you know, it leads you down a dark road. I'm going to tell you what personalities work best along with the best authors ever. Stop teasing it. A friend once told me that I'm like Socrates. I was like, what, I'm the smartest guy around? He said, no, because you piss everybody off. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, you got one more ad coming your way before we start this thing. The Socrates Express, Chapter 1, Get Out of Bed Like Marcus Aurelius. Our journey begins 7.07 a.m. somewhere in North Dakota, Eric Weiner is a broad Amtrak's empire builder. It's a train going from Chicago to Portland, Oregon. Symbolic name for a train. It in it, the empire builder, the transcontinental. Wakes up with a thick, toxic, fog-clouded brain. As a philosopher declared, quote, There are two kinds of people. The first type views slumber as a bothersome interruption of life and inconvenience. The second considers sleep one of life's unalloyed pleasures. I fall into the later category. I have few ironclad rules, but one is this. Do not mess with my sleep. Amtrak has, and I am not happy. Eric Weiner, the beginning of every chapter, he's on a different train somewhere in the world, and his sleep is being disturbed, giving us a nice duality off the bat. Do you like sleep, or do you like waking up early? He makes a claim from the Holy Roman Empire, quote, Our demons do not haunt us at nighttime. They strike in the morning. We are at our most vulnerable when we are awake, for that is when the memory of who we are and how we got here returns. Is this an old person thing? I'm gonna have to disclaim my position out first. Like I'm fresh in the morning. I love waking up seeing a sunset. Some people try to tell you the young person life hack. If you have something to do, get up one hour early. Well, then won't I just have to go to sleep an hour earlier at night? I did the whole daylight savings bit on the show before. It's like cutting an inch off of the bottom of your blanket and sewing it to the top. Yeah, my blanket is longer now. Buddy, it's the same inch. Why do we do this? (laughs) It's for CERN. Eric reaches into his backpack of uh, mind stimulation he pulls out a marcus aurelius quote it's who this is about marcus aurelius roman emperor commanded an army nearly half a million men and ruled over an empire that composed one fifth of the world's population stretched from england to egypt from the shores of the atlantic to the banks of tigris but marcus was not a morning percus percus person he lingered in bed doing most of the work in the afternoon after a siesta This routine put him at odds with the fellow Romans, most of whom rose before dawn. Good thing every child is standardized to wake up for homeroom at 7 o'clock a.m., right? (laughs) These empire builders. Marcus Aurelius, this guy commanded one-fifth of the world, he woke up whenever the hell he wanted. And, you know, he's considered the philosopher king for all the people who love stoicism. He was one of the first royalty who they didn't make go to school and shit. And he, look at that, grew up working out a ton and reading a bunch. He didn't eat Doritos and get high like Robert Hooke. Henry Ford quote here. I want a nation of workers, not thinkers. If you let kids sleep in, they might actually have a fresh mind. Eric said later on, on the streets of Rome bleary-eyed children walked to school in the pre-dawn darkness. Marcus, thanks to his elite background, had become homeschooled. They made the kids get up before daybreak. I've done graveyard shifts in my life. You feel like a vampire. But I think the one that sucked my soul most was like uh, 5 a.m. coffee shops. So you have to be up at 4.30. <laughs> I don't know, man. You know, it just throws off your whole day. It's fucking daylight savings on a miniscule scale. What do people have in common with Marcus Aurelius? Why should you care? He controlled the Roman army. I can't even control my desktop space. <laughs> we have a common enemy with this guy. He hates mornings. It's not a universal. But a bad day usually follows a bad morning. So you got to set the tone for the whole day. You can't just sleep through the mornings. Like I'm saying, fix the entire thing. It's like uh, college students that listen. Cramming for a test does nothing. If you listen to these sleep people, Andrew Huberman is the big neurologist now. You get more reps when you sleep. So don't stay up and pull all-nighters. You're forgetting the things that you just studied. And (laughs) you're basically drunk when you stay up for a long time. Stoic statement from Eric here. Quote, Mornings provoke powerful, conflicting emotions. On the one hand, morning smells of hope. Every dawn is a rebirth. Ronald Reagan didn't campaign on a slogan of late afternoons in America. It was his promise of morning in America that catapulted him to the White House. Republicans always have the stoic campaign slogans. MAGA. Obama was change. (laughs) This guy is a Taoist. I regretfully voted for Gary Johnson in 2016. I think that's my only presidential participation. His campaign slogan and what it was, our best America yet live free. That was a pretty good one. But we're yet to see any political spectrum slogan come true. Eric quote, too political. For some of us, though, mornings smell of simmering despair. If you don't like your life, chances are you don't like your mornings. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to get across with Freud and the hypnagogic state. When you wake up feeling groggy, maybe it's because you hate your life, too, and your subconscious brain is still there, and it's trying to tell you, bro, I'm not trying to do this all over again and again and again and again and again. I like this quote, it's stoic and it's psychedelic. Mornings are a time of transition, and transitions are never easy. We're leaving one state of consciousness, sleep, and entering another, wakefulness. To put it in geographic terms, mornings are the border town of consciousness. Damn! Tying it in with the trains. You're on the Consciousness Express in the mornings. (laughs) And you're coming out of tunnels. Trying to find some quotes. I like that quote. (laughs) I also like that one that climbers say, because they're always changing from one state to another. I come alive in the death zone. That's the energy, though. You got to embrace the state changes. There's no right side of this issue. Should you wake up early? Should you wake up late? Philosophers are all split on it. Nietzsche woke up at dawn. He splashed cold water on his face. He worked until 11 a.m., I think I remember reading once that he would drink cold milk all day. He never drank water. (laughs) This man must have had the most legendary milk mustache ever. Immanuel Kant. This guy made him look like a slacker. He would wake up at 5 a.m., immediately light his pipe, and start writing. There's a spectrum of the waking hours, but no one successful really sleeps until 10 a.m. Like I said, dawn before. Marcus Aurelius... Yeah, never later than 10. That's the rule. (laughs) This will take us to the end of the chapter, eases us into the rest of the book. The philosophical ought. So you should get out of bed. It doesn't mean that you have to. It's healthy to get out of bed. There's people that are bedridden, and you probably wish that you would have, but it doesn't mean you ought to. And, you know, my emphasis doesn't make it sound like a sound argument. But it's uh, logically structured. I'm not trying to lose anybody in the weeds here, but what always follows the ought is a yet. So I ought to get out of bed, yet I don't want to. Here's a slam dunk. I don't have to get out of bed because Marcus Aurelius didn't get out of bed. You know, when I tell you these guys slept until 10, that's not supposed to motivate you to be lazy. You don't have to, yet you should. And So that's when ethics gets injected into philosophy, the ought problem. Marcus displayed great courage in battle, but as biographer Frank L- L- McClinton, his most courageous feat was his constant striving to curb his natural pessimism. Even these big old kings, they got to check their sad boy side as well. Marcus was known for having chest and stomach pains his whole life. It kept him up at the nighttime eric's whole point is it doesn't matter when you get up it's the attitude that you tackle the day with got a couple more quotes meditations the book by marcus is unlike any book i've read says eric it is not really a book at all it's an exhortation a compilation of reminders and pep talks roman refrigerator notes what marcus fears most is not death but forgetting he constantly reminds himself to live fully Marcus had no intentions of publishing his refrigerator notes. They were intended for himself. You don't so much read Marcus as eavesdrop on him. That's pretty great. And do you want me to do a bit? This first chapter is going long. This would be like if um, uh, you got to read <laughs> too political. Never mind. Final quote for the chapter, when you wake in the morning, tell yourself the people you deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, jealous, and surely. Life hack. You gotta wake yourself up before the demons wake you up. At least this guy didn't go as far as Jean-Paul Sartre to say, hell is other people. Yeah, wake up before the demons. Chapter 2, Wonder Like Socrates. That's the sound of wonder to me. Eric starts off saying, Each one of our thoughts is connected to the next, like boxcars on a freight train. They depend on one another for their forward momentum. you got to conduct your thought, your boxcars well, and feelings follow the same pattern, that second layer of how you feel, the ethics of something. So your thoughts really do carry a lot more coal and you can often trace the back mood back to its causation, he's saying. This leads to Eric's first real point for the chapter. All great discoveries and personal breakthroughs begin with the two words, I wonder. And like the words of creativity are, what if? <laughs> but I wonder gets you to think about inside your head. There's underlying, like, locomotives. He said anger is one of the engines that you can use to push these thoughts. But that shit is toxic, bro. You're burning coal. Get some cleaner fuel. Eric had one of these moments, quote, Rarely once or twice in a lifetime, if you're lucky, you stumble across a sentence so unexpected, so plump with meaning, it stops you cold. I found such a sentence buried inside an odd little book called The Heart of Philosophy by Jacob Needleman, Here's the sentence. Damn, dude. Finally. Our culture has generally tended to solve its problems without experiencing its questions. Okay, that was worth it. What? Our culture, we go straight to the solution without wondering what the actual issue is. Let me give you an example to make it make sense Silicon Valley, the whole mindset, you know, people are miserable. Let's collect more data on them and find out how to troubleshoot this. We have enough data. You watch everything we do on our phones. Tech isn't asking the right questions. Why are we why are we miserable? Are we helping? Are phones making us happier or more sad? And no, we go straight to, what's the problem? You need food faster. Here's an app for that. What's the question here? Is the food apps making us happy? And yeah, the the point of life isn't to be happy, it's convenience for Silicon Valley. He goes deep semantics on us. The word experience and question are always intertwined. So you got to start with I wonder, and this will lead you to questioning why Silicon Valley needs us on their bullshit. Eric moves on to a better quote. Socrates isn't an easy man to know. Perched so high on the head, on the pedestal we've erected for him, he's barely visible, just a speck, an idea, a fuzzy one at that. And this whole chapter called Wonder Like Socrates, he's the first thinker. He got killed for wondering. Eric continues the quote: He was a man, a breathing, walking, defecating love-making, nose-picking wine, drinking, joke-telling man, an ugly man too. <laughs> The ugliest man in Athens, it was said. His nose was broad and flat, his lips full and fleshy, knees weak, arms heavy. His belly large, he was bald. He had crab-like eyes, widely spaced, on stalks, no, that endowed him with great peripheral visions. This guy sounded like a wretched beast. He wore the same clothes every day. It was rumored that he barely bathed. He walked everywhere barefoot. Socrates was a hippie. People said, quote, He could go days without sleep, drink without getting drunk. He heard voices. Well, a voice he called his Damon. Matt Damon! Socrates could outdrink anyone at a toga party. This guy's a legend. <laughs> In terms of otherworldliness, Eric goes... This is true. I think of all philosophers. They possess a otherness that borders on the alien. Even Marcus Aurelius, a Roman emperor, felt like a misfit. Diogenes, Diogenes, I'm not going to be able to say that right, a founder of cynicism, was the ultimate oddball philosopher. He lived in a barrel, masturbated in public, and in general traumatized the good people of ancient Athens. Okay, i got to look up Diogenes now. <laughs> lived in a barrel socrates found a movement in his time he called it crazy wisdom (laughs) that's what i should change the name of my channel to. he instructed his students to break social norms and see how it makes them feel ostracized like a psychologist today would call this shock treatment or i would call this the tyler durden complex you get your fight club together and tell people to go outside and break social norms Socrates also told students to question their other teachers. So, you know why everybody hated him in town. He was the first Tyler Durden. Aristotle was all about the stars and the math. Socrates went deep on feelings and humans and gave his students three questions to keep in their mind throughout the day How can I lead a happier, more meaningful life? How can I practice justice? How can I know myself? And all of these three questions have in common staying in a state of wonder. I wonder how I can be happier. I wonder how justice could prevail. (laughs) Uh, And then I wonder how I can know myself. In Socrates' words, Athenians, it seems, work tirelessly to improve everything except themselves. (laughs) That's silly. Sounds like America. He declared it his life's mission to get people to get their own house in order. To start wondering about things <laughs> the coolest part about socrates i thought eric said there's no such thing as socratic thought only socratic thinking socrates was all means and no ends like take it to school all means no ends everybody gets an a as long as you're trying it's the means that you're getting to this thing not everybody learns at the same pace But we stick everybody in a classroom so smart people get bored and develop ADHD and stupid people feel bad about themselves. Socrates is like the real father. I don't know, man. We need a joke in here. As long as you're thinking, you're not wasting space. I believe. Like as long as you're trying, that's the whole I think, therefore I am. A lot of people out here aren't even thinking. (laughs) Yoda said that quote while looking at a Polaroid. I botched it already. I think, therefore, I am. I think, therefore, I am. Fuck. (laughs) Moving on mid-chapter. One of Socrates' most timeless quotes summarizes this one. Knowledge doesn't age well. Methods do. This is the whole thing of wisdom. We don't care about your knowledge. What's the method? How are you learning stuff? I said it at the beginning of the show. Like... I am stupid, but I know a couple things. I know it from reading. And, of course, you got to live, but you can learn something or somebody can tell you something, and you don't internalize it for two years until it becomes a lived experience. So read and live, that's what he's saying, wonder and question. I think that'll come back later. Eric apparently agrees, quote, Scholars deploy many fancy terms to describe Socrates' method, The dialectic, the alucius, inductive reasoning. I prefer a simpler term, talking. I realize that doesn't sound sophisticated and probably won't snag me the Nobel Prize, but it's true. Talking, that's all it is. It's writing, is talking to yourself and putting it out. You have to spend time with an idea. I'm getting trippy again on it. Those ideas have people. That demon is inside of you and you got to feel that idea out or snuff it into your subconscious. (laughs) This guy's a pretty funny author. It's true. You see why questioning is similar to experiencing? It sets your mental discourse in the same synaptical cycle. A dialogue is simultaneously doing what questioning and experiencing is. You're experiencing a new conversation. So Socrates just got his students together and would talk, whereas all the other professors he made fun of made people memorize things. My favorite class in college, Mr. Steiner. (laughs) You won't be able to look him up. He used to get high before class, and then we would talk about crime outside. And there was a wide swath of people, kids that wanted to be cops and then hippie kids. And you'd watch them all go at it. You would hear some new things. And see, that was an experience. I felt like I was on a roller coaster. I don't remember being lectured to. Eric is saying questions seek meaning as much as they infer it. So when you ask someone else a question, you infer some new position from it. I think, therefore, I am. That's the only (laughs) wisdom from this part. All this is knowledge. Another great philosophical question I like. Where's the party at? Maybe meet a girl named Pandora at the party, open her box. Oh, philosophy jokes. Eric says wondering is open-ended expansive wondering is what makes us human that's been true ever since the first caveman wondered what would happen if he rubbed two sticks together when he came across a cave painting he probably went who put this here was there a party here that's a good question you're inferring who made this thing i don't know man just start asking questions Eric got a quote about this. A serious question carries risk, like striking a match in a dark room. You don't know what you'll find when the room illuminates. Monsters, miracles, but you strike the match anyway. That's why serious questions are uttered, not confidently, but clumsily, hesitantly, with gangly awkwardness of a teenager. Damn! Great quote. When someone starts tripping over their words, someone who doesn't usually speak up, You know what they're about to say is important. And even if it's a question, a lot of people write off questions. That guy didn't say his stance, so it's not important. This question could have just opened up an entire new fucking hour of conversation. That's a great quote. And yeah, it carries risk. That's why curiosity did kill the cat. You are really opening a fucking Pandora's box when you start asking questions. (laughs) but it's healthy for your mind. Thinking in the eyes of Socrates should be a ruthless interrogation. He said, that's great. And yeah, spending time with your ideas isn't going to be fun. You got to fucking waterboard yourself and ask yourself if you really feel certain ways about things. Socrates, quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. Examine yourself under high intense Gitmo pressure. End it all with a well-framed irony from Eric. I do know this. It is deliciously fitting that the king of questions, Socrates, departed in a cloud of them, leaving us scratching our heads, wondering. Socrates couldn't resist planting one more puzzle in our minds, one more question to experience. Chapter 3, Wander Like Rousseau. For this chapter, Eric is on a train from Basel to Neuchâtel, countryside of Switzerland. And this one is all about wandering, walking. So he's going to compare train travel to walking. Who remembers our uh, edition from Jean-Jacques Rousseau? This is all in Switzerland. I called the guy the prime meridian of rational thought. (laughs) He spilt his beans to us. That book was called The Confessions. He wrote... uh, The social contract, guy knew his shit. 1830s, Hugo described train travel as such. The flowers by the side of the road are no longer flowers, but flecks or streaks of red and white. Everything becomes a streak. The grain fields are great shocks of yellow hairs and long trees. Some thinkers in the early 1800s days of trains, they thought it was too fast paced. You need to stop and smell the roses. The Travelocity gnome was right. Back in Hugo's time, trains traveled 15 miles per hour. That was too fast for him. Speed is relative. Can you even imagine? (laughs) I'm going off the rails. Jumping into Eric, quote, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a man of multitudes, philosopher, novelist, composer, essayist, botanist, audactic, fugitive, political theorist, masochist. And we learned from the confessions he was one hell of a musician. Didn't know he'd like to have his balls tweaked. Most of all, he was a walker. He walked often, and he walked alone. Yes, a stroll with a close friend had its pleasures, as do walking clubs, but as its heart prefers, walking is a private act. You know, just even pacing off another person gets in your mind. Walking alone is liberation. Robert Stevenson, the guy who wrote Jekyll and Hyde, he wrote Treasure Island. He called walking, following the streak that takes you this way or that. And see, it combines the railway thing, the streak. You kind of get into this weird trance when you're walking. Rousseau followed his inner freak. He got lost in the Parisian countryside. Got kicked out of boarding houses, slept with mademoiselles left and right. There was an essence of freedom in walking he kept writing about. Especially in today's world, walking is a choice. You know, you could drive somewhere, take the bus or the train. And it's a relatively slow method compared to buses. You assume someone's exercising when you see them walking. You know, (laughs) look at that guy being healthy. I'm trying to think here. The citizens of Boulder, Colorado must think that I am a disembodied spirit, the way I just float around. Sometimes I'll do the Asian man, hands behind my back. The story from the Confessions, Jean-Jacques, he was an apprentice for an engraver. They both hated each other. One day he went to the countryside, and he came back too late. The city gates were closed to Geneva. So was 16 years old. He's like, I guess I'll just walk the countryside. He's France's Johnny Appleseed, (laughs) and our Johnny Appleseed hated the social contract. That is an archetype. While Rousseau, he came around to Paris in late age, he had an aversion to cities, so he said he felt unnatural and would only go there to get work published. He would visit Voltaire a lot. The Rousseau quote here, I found in the pain, in the shame, even a mixture of sensuality that left me desiring more. That was explaining his walking fetish. Like It it hurts you after a while, too, to walk too far. That's when the real good stuff starts. (laughs) I can't really relate with Eric this chapter. He goes, Mother Nature is something of a nag. A nag? It's the cradle of life. She's constantly reminding me of my core incompetence I don't know how to pitch a tent Or unpitch a tent Or anything involved with a tent We know Eric you have erectile dysfunction (laughs) In short Eric is saying I don't like being outside Because it makes me realize how incompetent I am (laughs) That's like getting mad at a mirror Why is this mirror showing me how ugly I am I hate this mirror You hate yourself Eric I can't make you a man with screaming at you or a mirror, but going in nature can. (laughs) He's hating the wrong things. He had a quote. You can tell a lot about a person by how they walk. The Pentagon recently developed advanced radar that can identify up to 95% of individual walks as distinct as a person's fingerprint or signature. There's reason for concern in that quote. Let's go for the personal development route. (laughs) You don't know how to walk until you walk alone, because those mirror neurons in your brain are firing and you're always copying the person next to you. You naturally sync up and start, ha, two, three, four, marching together. The more walks you take alone, the more you're able to get your own swagger back, baby. You catch me pimp walking when I'm in the wilderness. If I get a a nice 20% incline, I walk like Vince McMahon up to the ring when I'm going downhill. So definitely try that. Don't take your headphones with you. I don't know, man. The pace of life that we have now, there is no escape. Like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he could leave the city gates and separate that from himself. And you hear the word a lot today. It's hippie. Desensitize. Uh, Make it relevant. Porn desensitized me. That's what the Zoomers are saying. Nature. Nature. Or like a cute walking, he's saying, has the ability to re-sensitize you. There's that old movie, uh, Escape from L.A. It's a John Carpenter. That guy is a genius. (laughs) Yeah, with the main character, he surfs a wave up and into Steve Buscemi's convertible. It's very self-aware. It's a funny movie. This guy, at the end of the movie, the last scene, there's the main character, Snake, He just escaped to the technocratic prison of L.A. And then there's the general of the United States in the woods. Snake is holding the device that's able to turn off all the satellites. And the general is going, Son, if you press that button, everybody's going to be exposed to the wrath of Mother Nature. And Snake goes, Welcome. Welcome to the human race. And then he presses the button, and all the satellites turn off, and people... Look at that, leave their caves, go outside of their house, and realize they're humans again. There's a beautiful quote to end this one. Wandering, getting out inside of nature like Rousseau. Rousseau, like Socrates, was a kind of anti philosopher. He had no patience for empty logic chopping or hair splitting metaphysical subtleties. He was a thinker, but not an overthinker. Rousseau knew that his favorite organ, the heart, possessed its own intelligence. Once we access not with furrowed brow and tight jaw, but with loose legs and swinging arms. And once you get into fun stuff, the heart is the portal, my dude. Definitely get in touch. Your best ideas won't come from, like, a boardroom full of executives, ten-point plans. It's not going to even come from intense brainstorming. Get outside and walk. This is the wisdom for Chapter 3. Walk this way! Chapter 4, See Like Thoreau. On the train, Eric is discovering how the quiet car is the most civilized place in civilization. I would have to say the least civilized place is a megabus. You got five people playing Clash of Clans on full volume. It's the universal test of a good citizen. (laughs) That and the shopping cart. If you're an asshole who just leaves your shopping cart in the middle of a parking lot... You're a net negative on Earth. Henry David Thoreau, quote, was thrust upon me in ninth grade. I couldn't follow him, nor would I even have if I could. As I said, I was no woodsman. My life is not a model of simplicity. I promptly exiled Walden to the Serbia of my brain, where it joined Moby Dick, the brothers Karamazov, and Integral Calculus. Novelists like Dostoevsky, Herman Melville. Get that out of here, says Eric. That movie, The Big Lebowski, that's probably what this guy is watching. All of the symbolism is in front of your face. The dude and the nihilist go bowling. It's a pretty good movie, but it's a little too much fucking, hey, over here. All that being said, Eric admits, if I've learned anything from my philosophical investigations, is that first impressions are often wrong. Doubt is essential. It is the vehicle that transports us from one uncertainty to another. More of this train car stuff. Thoreau, he was born in Concord, Massachusetts. Late 1830s, he was fired from his teaching job. He wouldn't inflict corporal punishment on the students. So he left all of his material belongings, pursued a simple life in the woods. Walden was the name of the bog that he was warned to stay away from. So, of course, he went there and made it livable. Yeah, Walden, it's boring, and ninth graders read it. I'm pretty sure that Thoreau is the original Shrek. He moved to a swamp. (laughs) Quote, Thoreau possessed a certain iron pokernish, an uncompromising stillness in his mental character, said Nathaniel Hawthorne. Nasty Nate. The Scarlet Letter, our boy. I think that Nathaniel Hawthorne and Henry David Thoreau are Shrek and Donkey. And they were both cast out to the woods. (laughs) I should make one of those viral YouTube videos. The transcendentalism behind Shrek and Donkey. (laughs) Famous quote from Walden. In wildness, there is preservation of the world. It is often misquoted as wilderness, but that's not what he meant. Wilderness exists out there. Wildness resides inside us. Wildness is strong and willful. That's the wisdom right there. And another thing that your ninth grade teacher won't tell you, the row is a pussy. I'm trying to fight off a sneeze here. <laughs> Isn't that one of those... uh? astrology girl things when you have to sneeze it means that you're saying something on the nose sorry your ninth grade teacher won't tell you how much of a pussy thoreau was this guy would commute to the nearby town from his bog and he would do his laundry there he would eat pie there like it's like how these modern youtubers the biggest ones do overnight survival challenges they conveniently cut around all of the sleeping shots in the nighttime and go back and sleep in their fucking vans I'm calling you out. You're the new Thoreau. <laughs> Thoreau Woods, the original uh, Woods YouTuber, Nathaniel Hawthorne used to put out hype pieces about him and how deep his eyes were blue. You know, it's a circle where they're all putting each other up. Eric quote Thoreau's vision was legendary at a glance he could estimate the height of a tree or the weight of a calf he'd reach into a bushel of pencils and by sight alone grab exactly a dozen he had a knack for finding buried Indian arrowheads he's uh, a Superman Thoreau wasn't one to tolerate the materialism non-materialism debate he's one of these anti-philosophers I don't care I'm trying to live a simple life here Quote, Thoreau refused to get twisted in such epistemological knots. Trustworthy or not, our senses are all we've got, he argued, so why not use them as the best we can? His was an outside-in philosophy. I hate these, like, real scientific philosophers, (laughs) Schrodinger. How can we be certain the cat inside of the box is alive? Meow. Shut up. How can we be certain the cat is alive? Thoreau would be like, dude, open the box. What are we doing? Epistemological. Shut the fuck up, dude. The ability to see past dead ends is like American transcendentalism embodied. It's a dead end. Do we know if the cat is alive when we close the box? You'll never know. Stop fucking talking about it. Open the box. Transcendentalism. Just because at one moment you can't see the cat <laughs> dude, doesn't mean it ceases to exist. What are these physicists wasting all of our grant money for? Eric, quote, For Thoreau, seeing and feeling were intertwined. He couldn't see something if he didn't feel it. He How he felt determined not only how he saw, but what he saw. Sounds like he had selective attention. He in the world. He also used the word intertwined. Which quantum physicists also use. You know, gotta read that Dean Radin on here, the metaconscious circus. <laughs> There's all these different waves of transcendentalism, it just gets confusing. I would say Mark Twain was the second after these Thoreau's. Like when he went to the Rocky Mountains, he said, I finally understand why seeing is believing. And see, those Transcendentalists before were like, you got to trust the unseen, your senses. So Transcendentalism kind of isn't anything because the different waves go back and forth. It's just like feminism. (laughs) They're anti-philosophies. Here's a quote from Eric. It's not easy to see slowly like Thoreau. Vision is the speediest sense, far faster than, say, taste. There is no visual equivalent of savoring. So there's that wisdom. We got a wisdom sandwich this chapter. The wildness is inside of you, and seeing takes a long time. You can't savor a sight. Take a picture. It'll last longer. (laughs) Thoreau wrote about... Thoreau wrote... His senses being in constant strain, the outdoors helped him detoxify his mind. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Get outside. Thoreau, he had a double stack CPU inside of his cabin, right? He had smart light displays next to his weeaboo pillow. Get the fuck outside, people. (laughs) There's more happy and simplicity as well. If we're going to learn something from this guy... You don't need to go to an artisan tea shop. I go out into the woods during a sunset, bring my pocket rocket, a nice tin cup, and you put ponderosa pine needles inside of your cup. Boil that thing. It's got more vitamin C than a cup of orange juice. It's got all these antioxidants. Tastes kind of silly, but it makes a rainbow in the cup. You get a nice treat during a sunset. The simple things, that's what life is all about, baby. Final quote, change your perspective, and you change not only how you see, but what you see. From the right point of view, every storm and every drop in it is a rainbow. See like Thoreau. There's no such thing as getting lost. You just started your next land survey. (laughs) Quickest laugh ever. (laughs) Chapter five, enjoy like Epicurus. I'll pick up the pace. This is the shortest one of the bunch, too. It's about enjoying yourself. This is the decade of vice. We know this. Eric begins Born in 341 BC on the island of Samos, Epicurus turned to philosophy at a young age and for the usual reasons an abundance of questions and a deep suspicion of the answers adults gave him. Rightfully so. <laughs> All adults do is lie to children. One, two, three, eyes on me. And what if I don't? Epicurus' main belief was people need to be shaken out of their trance of habit. You're either living or you're dying. And to enjoy, you got to get shaken out of your normal zombified state. For Epicurus, this meant leaving behind his teachers, Democritus, Herculitus, and moving to Turkey to tend to his own garden. Regarding gardens, Eric says, gardens require tending, so do our thoughts. Someone who thinks it is not a philosopher and many, that's someone who putter about, yeah, your mind is a garden. You've got to teach or use your thoughts like plants. Like I said before, when you internalize a thought, the inception can happen two years later. So you have to try to water these thoughts. Voltaire picked up this idea. His quote, The gardener does her bit planting and shoveling and weeding, but ultimately the fate of her garden lies elsewhere. It rests with the natural process, and yes, the magic that unfolds within the garden walls. Philosophy contains its own magic, provided you do the hard work. Yo, that's the truth right there. Wisdom. I gotta read more Voltaire. It's a good metaphor, man. Watch your ideas grow with a little bit of luck. If I bring back my quote, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. If we apply the garden logic to that, people don't have gardens. Gardens have people. Little shop, little shop of horrors. (laughs) Gardens have people. You ever feel like nature is growing on you? Eric was on a train to Athens. He was saying... Uh, This is an important place because philosophy started here. Leads us to the better quote. Epicurus honed his own senses. He was a keen observer of human behavior. He surveyed Athens and everywhere he saw people who had enough. Enough food, enough money, and certainly enough culture. Why weren't they happy? This is the century of excess. Why do we have the most suicide? Before he was kicked out of the city... He tried to get people on his, uh, quote, four-part cure. Epicurus would tell him, like medicine, philosophy must be ingested at regular intervals. And he prescribed certain dosages of philosophy. (laughs) You don't give a newbie a Nietzsche for their first read. Like medicine, he said, there are potential side effects, dizziness, disorientation, and occasionally manic episodes. Oh! So yeah, when you read a Marcus Aurelius, you get manic. Bro, I could fucking control an army. And you need that energy from time to time because then you regress to the mean and become boring again. <laughs> you gotta prescribe yourself the right dosages. That's why I'm saying these guys are wizards. You can alter your consciousness with books. Uh sober people are liars. Ideas fucking influence consciousness. <laughs> An Idea. I'm getting high off of ideas, bruh. The reason that we like watch movies and art and stuff subconsciously, mm, smart, is so we could get a new angle to see the world through. It's all the same story. We want to see something from a new point of view. And I don't know, it's, it's all about <laughs> algorithmizing and making everybody standardized. That's not what makes us happy. We need to see different perspectives. Uh, Interesting assessment of Athens. The medicinal approach was no accident. Epicurus lived during the peak of therapeutic philosophy. During the time and era known as the Hellenistic Age, people chose a school of philosophy with the same ardent deliberation. People today chose a spouse or a wireless plan. Silly quote. We don't even have health care in this empire. (laughs) But Alexander the Great, who ruled over the Greeks with an iron thumb, he gave all of his people therapists. You were allowed to go to a school and learn how to think, even as an adult. He also snuck in that quote. People ardently chose their spouses. There's probably less divorce in ancient Greece. We're sadder. We get divorced more. But we have so much technology, so stick around. The Hellenistic age, it was like the birth of universities a lot of these thinkers start. But now, universities, you have to go in $200,000 of debt to. And that's where you search for your spouse. Not very ardently, but drunkenly. These schools used to be self-help seminars. I don't understand how lost we are. (laughs) I don't know, while anyone could join these schools, most people didn't. That's a very interesting point. Like, I'm already too smart for school. I already have enough friends. These people wouldn't listen to Epicurus anyway. So, I mean, we don't need you at the school. I don't know how I shall conceive of the good, Epicurus said, if I take away the pleasure of taste. If I take away sexual pleasure, if I take away the pleasure of hearing, if I take away the sweet emotions that cause the slight of beautiful form. How do you acknowledge pleasure when... (laughs) you tell people to put their phone down. I understand that. I ostracize most of the audience when I say that in the first sentence. The phone addicts, the overeaters. It's until you confront that idea that you can move on to the next one. And that's what this guy is saying. You have to take away your sexual pleasure everything else until you realize what actually matters. One state of monkism. That should be what holidays are. Everybody has to... (laughs) The Muslims have it right. Yeah, Epicurus. This is enjoyment. It's all about either avoiding pain or seeking pleasure. And your body goes into one of these two states over time, which can lead to mania or depression. We're in the weeds here. Let's get back to philosophy. The Greeks called it ataraxia. You can reach this state of a lack of disturbance. I don't care. Nothing bothers you. And that doesn't mean... You don't, you know, want to see the wars in the world end. It's just I don't care. I know I can't do anything about it. You have to get ataraxic about it. I don't know. That's the method, if you want a method for the chapter. The best thing to learn from Epicureanism, he's the guy that did uh, everything is better in moderation. So it's the pleasure paradox. If you take an hour off of your day today and add it to... Tomorrow, you're just stealing happiness from another day. Same with like drinking and a hangover. One of the happiest periods of my life was when I was growing weed to tie it back to drugs and then the garden and thoughts perspective. And that's all alleged. I didn't really do that. (laughs) Watching something grow is great. you got to turn your mind into a garden and use the side that will make you bigger. Chapter 6, Fight Like Gandhi. For this chapter, Eric's on a train in India. It was built in 1853. It's called the Yoga Express. Eric is complaining about his world tour here. It smells in India. Everybody's poor. He said for a thousand mile train my ride, he had to wear a mask. Quote, Gandhi would be alarmed but not surprised by the sorry state of India's alleged heir. More than a century, he warned of the dangers of industrialization. Oh, the world is melting. I can't. <laughs> this guy is going to try to get lefty on us now. Yeah, it's fucking polluted. Stop having 10 kids. Eric did see some things that Gandhi would approve of. A bunch of teenager street walking you know Gandhi's not a good person he slept with teenagers he was part of British intelligence no one tells you that part yeah so the Delhi train that he's on it's going through elite neighborhoods and then it goes through poor neighborhoods how can these people live next to each other we just learned about it states of transition stop acting dumb Eric I go to Union Station in Denver that's this industrialized city's main hub I saw a guy smoking, I think, meth out of a foily. He <laughs> fashioned a crack pipe out of tin foil, And yeah, he's smoking crack in the middle of Union Station. Stop talking about how India sucks. Let's fix America, fuckhead. I feel that way. Eric says, Mahandas K. Gandhi wasn't ambivalent about much, except trains. Great quote. He was outspoken on the matter. <sighs> we'll give him some grace. On the third hand, Gandhi saw the railroad as such, another way for Britain to keep India under her thumb. As like other philosophers, I've encountered he was wary of excess speed. Is the world any better for quick instruments of locomotion, he asked. Gandhi said, how do these instruments advance man's spiritual progress? Do they not in the last resort hamper it? And so don't give this credit to Gandhi, my boy Jean-Jacques Rousseau, invented the purification of morals argument, which is, are these advancements of instruments impeding our spiritual progress? That's a big yes. (laughs) iPhones don't make you smarter. They make you stupider and less in touch with your own higher self, or whatever you want to call it, your third eye, your spirituality, if you're a fan of Gandhi. It's, um kind of bullshit every thinker rips off each other and yeah Gandhi was part of intelligence so instruments are neutral is the whole wisdom I'm going to try to give you for this chapter technology isn't good or bad it's the application if we're using it to spy on each other or monitor each other's bank accounts it is a bad application trains can bring the circus to town it could also bring the u-gears to work camps (laughs) or you know the birkenwitz family you get the joke 1896 gandhi was kicked off a train in south africa for his skin tone led to a more famous quote of his real beauty he said is doing good against evil all violence represents a a failure of imagination Nonviolence demands creativity Gandhi was always searching for new innovative ways to fight. How brave. Yeah, nonviolence is innovation. Like, why didn't he just paint his face white? Make a mockery out of the thing. I lost so much faith in humanity during the whole mask debacles. You would like I saw one guy who wore a Zorro mask. I saw a couple of gas masks out there. But we have zero rebellious bones in America. They had the white bike movement in Amsterdam. I got a whole book on that coming. That is the Gandhi spirit. Get nonviolent and start mocking these fucking laws. We are going to be enslaved in the social credit system. They're talking about ID 2020. Don't use it, do not comply. Like I said, no one rebels, so. Let's move on. <laughs> Eventually, quote, yes, Gandhi imagined a world without violence, but he was realistic enough to know that he was unlikely to happen soon. In the meantime, we must learn how to fight better. Yeah, you know, you're a pussy. Violence is for men. You gotta re listen to the art of war. It's the beta male that attacks first. Quote. Gandhi has obsessed with masculinity, words like manliness, strength, courage. Even his complaints about Indian railways were couched in terms of emasculation. They want to tamely put us with the hardships of railways as a sign of our unmanliness. It's uh, like the guy sucks, but he's right. (laughs) We're getting pussified by technology. It isn't making us manlier. That's why I'm obsessed with chainsaws. It's the one thing that makes us sick. And guns. That's cool tech right there. Yeah, most technology is cucking us out. I would much rather have a horse that I could be totally free on, not paying 10 a gallon. As old as 75, Gandhi was taking vows of celibacy, and then he would invite uh, teenage girls into bed with him and not sleep with them. It's a vow of celibacy, and you have to believe him. (laughs) Here's a, a peaceful way to fight back for my Union Station idea bring the chapter to a close. How about I raise money to then pay the hobos 50 bucks each to camp outside the mayor's mansion? Mayor Hancock. <laughs> that is called non-violent compliance. Got a quote here. Mahatma Gandhi took one last train journey 13 days after his assassination. He was a ghost. <laughs> the second coming. And his ashes were placed on a train, and they made it go all the way through India. What a nice story. Fight like Gandhi. Let's start throwing poop back at the upper class. (laughs) Let's go to Chapter 7, Have No Regrets Like Nietzsche. Woo! Second to last one, and this is my guy. We got another one of his books coming up in a month, so keep it quick. Eric is on a train heading through the Swiss Alps. He's just rubbing it in our face. He says, the beauty never ends on this ride. At some point, you're wishing to see a run-down (laughs) lumberyard. Eric spent a ton of time this chapter. He was saying his favorite movie is Groundhog's Day. Quote, as Phil Connors wrestles with the blessing and the curses that are his eternally reoccurring day, he also wrestles with philosophy's major themes. What constitutes moral action? Do we possess free will or are our lives fated? How many blueberry pancakes could a grown man eat without exploding? This guy loves Groundhog's Day. It is a good movie. The whole way this ties in, Nietzsche lived Groundhog's Day. Eric arrives in Sils Maria, quote, 124 years after Nietzsche. I see why he liked it. The gingerbread houses, authentic as they are, adorable. The air sharp and clear, and everywhere I look, the Alps stretched skyward. If there was such a thing as Swiss dirt, I see no evidence of it. Even the trash cans are spotless. He lived in a winter wonderland. Why was Friedrich Nietzsche so damn sad? He visits his room. It's above a local tea shop. There's one narrow bed in it. A small writing desk. Oriental rug. A kerosene lamp. Zero posters of chicks. We know his cot went unused. Nietzsche was a virgin his whole life. Talked a big game for living so minimal. Quote, we want to be poets of our life. First of all in the smallest most everyday matters. Like um, (laughs) every douche on Snapchat. Hey yo. My life a fucking movie. Yeah, a horror movie. <laughs> Nietzsche was saying make your day the best day ever and keep working to perfect your day. Here is how Nietzsche's groundhog day began. Nietzsche craved routine. He woke early, took a cold bath, and then sat down for a monkish breakfast. Munka, raw eggs, tea, and anseed biscuit. During the day, he wrote and walked. In the evening between seven and nine, he sat still in the darkness. An admirably rigid routine, but hardly heroic. Where, I wonder, is the philosophical daredevil, the aeronaut of the spirit? I'd be scared as hell if I came across a dark park bench and Friedrich was sitting there. you would think he was a flasher. Eric said the mustache was how he fooled people into thinking he was deep. The who was it? Bismarck was the Kaiser at the time, so he grifted off of that style. Judge for yourself, quote, from age 13, Nietzsche suffered from migraine headaches that, along with a panoply of other ailments, plagued him throughout life. His terrible eyesight worsened over the years. He suffered fits of vomiting that lasted hours. Some days he couldn't get out of bed at all. His dad died when he was young of softening of the brain. You get the picture. It's super depressing. And then the end of his life is even worse. Eric takes the stoic turn for the chapter. Frederick lived in death's shadow. And so he lived every day as if it was his last And you're saying, if it was my final day, I would want to drink a zillion beers. I would have sex on the lawn of the White House. If it was really your last day, you would probably want to chill. Probably want to mentally prepare to pass on. (laughs) Nietzsche discovered some pyramid-looking rock near Silvapana. It was the big lake near his hometown. And so this was Friedrich's claim to fame in his hometown. Claim to flame because he wrote the inferior sex about women. He never left his local town because he had some street cred there. And it was a winter wonderland. He became the best shit poster ever. Like I said, Thoreau was a nature YouTuber. Nietzsche was just a shit poster. (laughs) He got his best quote out there in Zarathustra. God is dead. A three-word tweet that set the world on fire. He's just sending them out there from a 6,000-foot mountain town. I like this one of his. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. (laughs) He's like, stop doing things. It's wearing you out. Sit in your cot all day. Protect your mind. Fuck that. He didn't drink, so he would have probably bombed in front of most audiences. Listen to this one. Alcohol makes you as stupid as Christianity. You would never get a laugh with that. (laughs) Nietzsche found a joke that somehow pisses off the drunks and the sobers. That's legendary. Except it's not funny because crowds don't laugh at it. (laughs) You know, he is the guy that we did good versus evil. (laughs) Like, when you start thinking about things in binaries, your IQ drops 15 points. And that's how you communicate to the masses. He's not wrong. He's just an asshole. He didn't use his proposed megamind just for trolling. He wrote the eternal reoccurrence of the same. He was going, your energy gets recycled. So yeah, perfect this day because you probably have to relive it a million times. Groundhog's Day. (laughs) Why did he eat raw eggs every morning? That's his paradise. Have no regrets like Nietzsche. Do what you like, he says. He empowered people by saying you have the will to power. Yeah, man. He might have influenced Hitler, (laughs) but the message is good. Another good quote. All truth is crooked. All lives, too. Only in retrospect do we straighten the narrative, assign pattern and meaning. At the time, it's all zigs and zags and white space breaks into texts that cleave our former selves from incipient to future self. I'm not attaching my entire belief here and I'm trying to warn you of doing the same thing. He's going, man, it's all just random zigs and zags and we attribute pattern. That's not true. He does, he, there's no way to know that. It's philosophically sound. But yeah, maybe you are being led by something. Just a caveat to give you the other side. Eric ends the chapter. There's a reason Groundhog Day is a comedy. If we do live the self-same life over and over again in the self-same way, forever and ever, then what could we do but laugh? How to have no regrets like Nietzsche? Dance. That's enough of that. Our final chapter Chapter 8, Die Like Montaigne, 1530, he peaked with les essais. It would be fun to have that one on the show because all he does is mock intellectuals. Sounds kind of familiar, right? <laughs> he debunks the necessity to learn. Quote, we are all but blockheads. On the highest throne in the world, we are all seated upon our asses. See, this guy's punching up. Montagi would have killed mid-Renaissance, all that reason and logic. You know, we're going to make you happy. This guy's like, no, we're, the Enlightenment, stop thinking. Let's get drunk and dance in the street. Relating it to the last chapter, quote, In practice, thousands of little women in their villages have lived more gentle, more equitable and more consistent lives than Cicero. Those Marcus Aureli, he didn't really live a life. He was up in the fucking tower all the time. He doesn't know what it's like to be a human. We have the opportunity, us, the listeners, the people. We're either on the cusp of a full fucking cyberpunk enslavement or a renaissance. That's my, or maybe it'll be Corona punk. (laughs) You know what I'm saying here? It's either going to, I don't know. Well, it's just Hope. Let's believe. That's a better word than hope. The whole works better when each cell focuses on its own part. You ever hear that? Well, you also have to turn your mind to the middle as well. As beloved, so below. I'm just going to start sounding like Alan Watts here. Montagy. He was a snobby guy. He had a lot of mm, ideas. Here's a quote of his. Or Eric, like me, Montagin is restless in mind and body. Like me, he enjoys traveling but enjoys coming home. Like me, he is a compulsive underliner and annotator. Like me, he has atrocious handwriting and struggles to unscramble what he's written. Like me, he's terrible with money and extraordinarily incompetent in the world of business. You get it. Montagin is relatable. Continues on about how death makes philosophers out of all of us. Even the least contemplative person wonders at some point, hey, what what happens when we die? This is not forever? Wait a minute. Montagy lived in Bordeaux, where half of the people from the previous generation died of the plague. So this guy was death-obsessed. He said, even when he was with a woman, it consumed his thoughts. Yo. Him and Eric Weiner are both impotent. More good words here towards the end. Driving our dread of death is not only fear, but greed. We want more days, more years, and when against all odds we receive those, we still want more. Why? wondered Manpajin. If you have lived one day, you have lived them all. There is no other light, no other night. This sun it's moon, these stars. This is the way they are arranged. All of these are the very same your ancestors enjoyed and will entertain your grandchildren. Damn. Yeah, bro. Seeing a sunset hits so hard because it's the most human thing. Every almost every single person who's ever lived has experienced that. That's oof, baby. <laughs> You either know something in your heart, or you don't know it at all. Deep quote here, we'll have to end it. Live your life, not as a standardized exam, but like Gandhi, as one grand experiment. In this sort of personal lived philosophy, the goal is not abstract knowledge, but personal truths. Not to know that, but simply to know. I know that black people be wilin', but I know we're all the same. Knowledge versus wisdom. It's been a great day here. Knowledge can teach you the difference between racism and humor. Wisdom is blowing a tranny behind a dumpster. (laughs) Eric Weiner, thank you for the grand tour. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the Socrates Express. How did I not make more wiener jokes? I'm wondering right now as I see the cover of the book. If you like the video, send it to a philosophical friend. We are underway for the month of May. Ladies and gentlemen, next week on the show, we have got... (laughs) Japan Restored. It is time to dive into another nationality. See what the future holds. The East... I bet you guys needed to do some restoring after eating those nukes, huh, Japan? Japan restored? Sorry, not sorry. You're getting an American take on the honorable Japanese akocho and the not-so-honorable disintegration into their sexless cyborg state. It's going to get fun. Japan is where East meets West. It's a balanced view of the world. As always here on Nick's Nonfiction. I want to thank you guys, the listeners. I hope you enjoyed this edition. I hope you were able to get some wisdom of your own out of it. My name is Nick Munez. Please check out patreoncom dunnish and as well Harry Schwant on Instagram. Love you guys. Let's get a random soundboard effect to take us out. Damn son, where'd you find this? I found him from my mama. Thank you for joining for another edition of Nick's Nonfiction. I love you guys. My name Nick Munez. I'll see you all next week. Peace.